This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by Coin Gaming, Kava Labs, and Nexo. Stick around to hear more about them later in this episode. Hey, Nick, thanks. Thanks for coming on the show. And and we were just talking about um, the book Digital Gold when it when it came out by Nathaniel Popper. And and there's another book, actually, Bitcoin Billionaires by uh, Ben Mesrick that I love. And uh, you were telling me that the the story was was gripping in a way for you. Um, and I have yeah. a funny story about that. Well, thank you com- for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Charlie. Really happy to be here. Well, yeah, uh, I, the book was like part of my journey to Bitcoin, too. It's kind of surreal you know, to chat to you about it because you're one of the main characters. Um, but yeah, that was, that was part of my journey too. I just, I found it so, I called it the Bitcoin Bible for a while because that was like the only history book we had about Bitcoin. It almost Bitcoin. looked like a Bible, right? And it was a black cover with gold letters. Um, I remember when that book came out, I was actually in prison. And um, I had, by this point, I brutally honest with you, by this point, I was like four months into prison and when you're doing an 18 month stay you're like that four fifth month you're in the weeds of it you're like oh shit i just did all this time and i have all this more time to do (laughs) and that book came out and by that time i had basically given up all my existence i assumed that bitcoin was over my world in bitcoin was over this was 2015 right i thought my world was over and and during this time, like Ethereum was being conceptualized and founded, like Bitcoin was making leaps and bounds, even though it was going through like a heavy bear market. But I wasn't getting inf- this information. I had no phone calls. Like the letters I was getting was no one was like, oh, hey, by the way, like the industry's doing great. You should know that, uh, you know, like a Vitalik is launching and talking about Ethereum at this Bitcoin conference last week in Miami. Like, by the way, that's that's how he announced he. Uh, big, lo- yeah, yeah, Bitcoin Miami. Exactly. Right. Um, no one was telling me that. So I'm sitting here like thinking that the whole industry's dead and I'm over. And all of a sudden I see these other inmates walking around with this book called Digital Gold. And I'm like, wait a minute. I remember that guy, Nathaniel, was writing that book. And I'm like, bro, can I can I see that book for a second? No. <laughs> he hadn't even read it yet. Then <laughs> if I went over to him and I'm like, let me just leaf through this book really quick. And my name wasn't in like any of the jackets. And I just started leafing through. I'm like, oh my God, I'm like a quarter of this book right now. And I got so scared because you don't want to be above the radar in prison. You don't want anyone to know who Uh, you are uh, under the radar. Because I was with, with, you know, congressmen, with politicians, with former police officers, detectives. And then you're mixed in with everyone, with drug dealers and uh, child molesters. It's all everyone. It's a big, like, big hodgepodge. And uh, you don't want people to know who you are. So I'm like walking around. And I remember trying to downplay the whole thing. Like, no, that's not me. That's someone else. Or I just kept making up all this crap that like that it wasn't me or someone else was wrong or this is another Charlie. Because as long as I was able to sow doubt with the other inmates, they didn't have any other communication on the outside to verify if my information was right or wrong. So I was able to like keep that under the radar for a while. And then the prison administration actually added it to their book of banned books. They have a banned book list. So you couldn't get they, it in. Why would they ban digital gold, man? They, they, I, I don't know. They ban digital gold. They ban, um, like all these. They banned a lot of books, actually. Like mo- anything related to like finance. That they Bitcoin was like Silk Road seemed as like scammy. So like someone in the prison administration saw digital gold Bitcoin and said this can't, this book can't, can't be allowed in. That's a crazy. So I, I, I would have thought you would have had like street cred with the other inmates for being like high profile bitcoin prosecution probably the first one like 
You know, the Bitcoin evil is eye, like a glamorous, sexy thing. The evil eye is very much prevalent in prison. Growing up, I was taught in a very superstitious household that people can put an evil eye on you. And if they're jealous with envy, they can put an evil eye on you. And I try to follow this my whole life. Downplay everything. A, a, a quiet fortune is a virtuous one, right? So right. in prison, it's worse, though, because if someone puts that evil eye on you, I would see friends boasting about something and then other inmates get jealous very easily. And the next mm -hmm. morning, your friend is gone. His soul cell is cleaned out. All of his stuff is gone because what happens is the administration doesn't want any like any issues between any of the inmates. So there are other inmates that would go to administration and say, this guy's doing this. They thought I was a bookie. They would shake my, my locker down every week. That, you know. So you want to just stay under the radar, be cool. I almost got the crap be beat out of me the first week because I would just walk around like my shit didn't stink, you know? And you can't mm -hmm. do that. You can't act like that. You have to be even. You have to, to, to treat others with that very base level of respect, the stupid word respect. You'd hear it every day. You don't give me respect, 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 respect. Most people don't even know what that definition of that word means. And, and it like, everyone assumes that respect is owed to you. Like you're just, because you're human, you should be mm -hmm. respected. And that's not the case. I feel like I've been talking about so much on this show. Hey everyone, I am Charlie Shrem and you are listening and watching Untold Stories where twice a week, or me really every day. We get to dive deep with some of crypto's most influential leaders, thought provokers, uh, brilliant people, brightest crayons in the box, the sharpest tools in the shed, and, and those who, people who make me talk too much. Um, but I like to have other people too who talk better to really find out how this industry came to be because I feel like if we can understand the beginnings and the people involved and the who's and the what's and the where's and the why's, we'll never forget where we're going. And if we never forget where we're going, the experiment of Bitcoin will have succeeded. And I think I forgot who said it in 1984, maybe it was Hayek or someone. He said that we're never going to take money out of the hands of the government violently. We're going to have to take it in a very sly way where they won't know about it. And it's mm -hmm. a brilliant, brilliant quote. Nick Carter, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're a partner at Castle Island Ventures. You have your own podcast called On the Brink. Um, you are the co-founder of Coinmetrics, and you were the, the, one of the first crypto asset analysts at Fidelity Investments. And when I, was doing the, when I was doing my research, I was a little bit jealous because like I've always, that's like the best, isn't that a great job like where you get to be a crypto analyst? I, I'm jealous. I'd, I'd love if someone yeah. hired me to be a crypto analyst where I get to just do this and talk and thought provoke. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, my friend. Thanks, Thank Charlie. Thank you. I know this is long, long overdue. We've been trying to set this up for a long time. But I'm yeah, it was a great was job. Work out. I was only there for a year or so. Um, and then, you know, I left to start Castle Island with uh, with Matt Walsh. And I felt kind of bad about that because I felt that my job wasn't done at Fidelity. You know, it's like my job was like develop or help develop their view of Bitcoin, their sort of institutional view of Bitcoin, because they were going to create Fidelity digital assets and they needed sell-side research, basically, uh, which is a job that Rhea Batora does amazing 
work over there now. Uh, and there's a bunch of people that chipped in at Fidelity. But my uh, friend just yeah, got hired it, there it, as the one of their the chief marketing officer at Fidelity um, Digital Assets, and he's doing uh, Steve Capone. He, I had him Steve. on the show actually. Yeah, I love great guy, amazing guy. Love he's Steve. the one who got me into Voyager. Without him, it's such a great thing. Like the people that you meet. Totally, totally. Yeah, I. It it was a crazy, crazy job. I mean, I joined in late. 2017 too when everything was absolutely nuts so um it was it was a weird time but yeah my like my second or third week there um i presented to like abby johnson senior leadership there uh just you know talking about what's the difference between bitcoin and other crypto assets developing a taxonomy to help disaggregate them uh the whole thing was pretty surreal where was the demand coming from like this was before they started you're talking about huge company fidelity right they they launched an, a whole separate company based off of early days bitcoin but now all of digital assets in those years i mean this was this was where was that demand coming from like why were why yeah. why were they even investigating this well they started in 2014 and really i'm going to give credit to abby johnson the you know, she she runs the company. It's a family business. It's the Johnson family. It's always been in the family. It's private, so they can operate more stealthily, right? It's not a publicly traded firm. So they can be a lot more, they have a lot more discretion over what they like look into. As opposed to like a Goldman or JPM, like everything you do, it gets kind of like reported in the press. So you can't do anything stealthily. And they have to answer to obviously all their public shareholders. Fidelity doesn't have those constraints. So they literally mined a bunch of Bitcoin in 2014 just as an experiment. They put the internal strategy team on it because they identified quote unquote blockchain or Bitcoin as like a highly disruptive technology. So they correctly identified it. And they said, over the next 10 years, we think it could completely disrupt the core of our business. We're an asset management firm. And then they have all these other. Uh, ancillary businesses that kind of support the asset management side, which is like the economic driver of the business. And so then they just spent five years like trying to figure it out, like, okay, what's our play here? Um, and then eventually they realized that the simplest thing they could do was to support Bitcoin as an asset. Um, but they did all sorts of crazy stuff. Like you could you could pay for uh, things in the cafeteria with Bitcoin for a while. Really? Uh, yeah, which was like kind of a catastrophe, obviously. Yeah. Um, they had executives like go around the city of Boston, you know, using Bitcoin ATMs, like trying to go to convenience stores that said they accepted Bitcoin. Like a lot of what, you know, early Bitcoin OGs will remember doing, like trying to transact with Bitcoin at brick and mortar stores. They had their senior executives go and do that stuff in 2014, 15. Um, but then eventually they realized, okay, the number one problem we can solve is custody. And then subsequent to that is like brokerage for institutions. Because uh, the number one question they got from their clients in 2017 was Bitcoin, help me, you know, help me custody Bitcoin. I have Bitcoin. What do I do with it? Will you hold it for me? That kind of thing. So it was really uh, all about Bitcoin. Um, and, and blockchain, where did that start to come in? And was there a, a wrestle? Because even, even today we look back and we, and it's like about spending Bitcoin. You gave the perfect example. Spending Bitcoin 
was used as a positive, but then later on in Bitcoin's history or towards the middle years, the middle years, right? Is that what I'm calling it now? <laughs> it was like, well, you can't spend Bitcoin. And that was used as one of the biggest attacks against Bitcoin. Like the, in, in fact, like the whole block size debate came from that, yeah. like the inability to spend it, spend it, spend it. But maybe we were all wrong in that maybe its value comes from the ability to earn it and then use it and then store it and save it or whatever. Like maybe earning can replace that spending uh, because you don't need transaction finality for every single transaction all the time in real time. Of course. And I, I asked for my salary to be paid in Bitcoin when I joined, but uh, they couldn't support that at the time. <laughs> <laughs> I think they'll probably get around to doing it now. My guess would be that they they would. Obviously, that's much much more common these days. But yeah, I mean, if Bitcoin is like more of this like savings device, you know, this like form of collateral, you know, this sort of like you know fast settling gold like thing, you know, it doesn't make as much sense for spending, and that's what Fidelity kind of learned. But at you know, well, in spending is a product. I I think. Yeah. And, and, you know, spending can happen with other services that plug into the network. Like today, PayPal announced that you can use your Bitcoin position at PayPal to make purchases with any of their like 29 million merchants in the US. So, so of course, cool. what's happening behind the scenes is they're sort of liquidating that fiat and, you know, then the merchant gets fiat. But like from your perspective, you're spending with Bitcoin. Well, you you're know? spending with Bitcoin because now you're collateralizing your Bitcoin because you earned it. And now Bitcoin is your collateral asset that's digital and liquid all the time. It's like your digital house. You can borrow against it in real time. So when you're spending it through a Bitcoin debit card or even with PayPal, it's like, you're just reconciling at the end of the month. It's like you're paying your credit card bill and the credit card companies within that 30 days deals with fraud and chargebacks and blah, blah. Spending is a product. Spending doesn't need to be on layer one on-chain. Totally. Yeah, and I think the problem is that, is that Bitcoin is actually so useful being a digitally native good that we were seduced by this idea of payments at the base layer. But it's kind of like paying for everything with bank wires. Like you could do that. It would just be, you know, pretty cumbersome. And you're not really using the system in the way that it's sort of in the use case that it is really suitable for at the end of the day. So now, like, going back to those years for a second, and I'm in that, was that your first quote unquote job in, in, in the Bitcoin industry? Yeah. Yeah. In the Bitcoin space. Yeah. I mean, I was like a, a quiet Bitcoiner from sort of 2013 when I, I mined my first Dogecoin, actually, believe it or not, uh, when I was in school, um, which was a funny, different story. But I but from that to 2017, I didn't do anything in the Bitcoin industry. I sort of watched it from the outside and I was like, well, how do I get into this? You know, I want my career to be in Bitcoin. And it was like a sequence of really lucky coincidences that I ended up being able to make that my career. And you... You started in a very interesting job role um, and very quickly uh, became like a, 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 a thought provoker first, not a thought leader yet, like a thought provoker first. I remember reading your early Twitter account um, and you very quickly um, gained a, a very, very big following. And I want to ask you, why do, why do you think that happened? Like, why do, why do you think that like 
tongue in cheekness or more so like the ability to kind of like, I hate to say dumb down, but to break down very complicated FUD into or very complicated topics into like 280 characters. Do you think there was a need for that back then? Why do you think uh, this happened? I don't know, honestly. To a certain extent, I think I just rode the wave of Bitcoin popularity. And I was one of a bunch of people, really. But I wrote a lot. And I tried to write about Bitcoin in relatively plain terms. And I think people appreciated that. And I tried to basically tell the truth as much as I could. I know that sounds like crazy, but, you know, there's there's something to be said for that. And then also, like, I wasn't afraid to point out what I thought were the, like, the dark underbelly of the industry. You know, I actually wrote a piece called The yeah. Dark Underbelly of the, <laughs> of yeah. the Crypto Markets. And I think people like that because they like it when insiders, not to say that I'm an insider, but you know, people appreciate it when people with sure. proprietary knowledge of an industry expose the uglier sides of it to try and you know, cast light on that. And that's what I always tried to do. I don't do as much of it today because it's difficult and like people get mad at me. But uh, that was that that was sort of how I built my brand a little bit. All right, guys, so with a pretty crazy chaotic year behind us, we've got 200 reasons to put your Bitcoin to the test, courtesy of my friends at BitCasino, and I've gotten you an amazing, amazing offer. You have to go to bitcasino.io forward slash shrimp to get it, but all you have to do is wager 5 MBTC, small amount, wager 5 MBTC or more on BitCasino on any slot, and you get 200 free spins to their legacy of dead game. You get 200 free spins, 200 spins to win more money for free. And all you have to do is do one slot bet. I love these guys. BitCasino was ahead of the crypto game before that game even got going. The original Bitcoin-led online gaming destination, they really, really, really pushed and to continue to set the standard for fun, fast, and fair gameplay because you have the blockchain. You might as well be fair and transparent while you're at it. Deposit, wager, and withdraw in Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tron, Litecoin, so many cryptos, all in real time, all the time with BitCasino. Moving right along. Hey guys, it's Charlie. And remember that time we interviewed Anthony Trenchev from Nexo Finance? Well, they are on a roll right now offering 5.9% APR on your crypto credit. You'll be able to borrow at less than 6% on some of your crypto. They got a savings account that's offering 12% interest a year. And now they have an integrated exchange so you can trade between all your cryptos without ever leaving their integrated wallet. It's so amazing. Make sure you check it out at nexo.io and start earning interest, start managing your assets because crypto banking just got real with Nexo. I love that. That's awesome. <laughs> I love Nexo. It's such a great company. I want you guys to take a moment and check out what the folks and my newest sponsors over at Kava Labs are doing because up until now, whenever you do anything related to DeFi, like borrowing, lending, uh, loans, bonds, stable coins for Binance, Huobi, Kraken, or all these different places, they actually have been using Kava Labs on the back end. And now you can get those same APYs and those same awesome features that these financial institutions have been getting, you can get them too. All you have to do is go to kava.io and check it out. But on top of that, Kava and Binance, working for International Women's Month, have been launching a $50,000 
prize pool that's ending this week. All you have to do is go to Binance or click the link in my show notes. You'll be able to go on there, trade $100. All you do is trade $100 and you get cards that you're entered into drawings that you can get up to $50,000 a part of a prize pool. Make sure you check them out, kava.io. It's kind of unfair because that needs to happen more. And maybe that falls on, on you know, like folks like you and myself. Uh, because we have the ability to, there are hostile actors that will come out on social media and, and, and when you're shedding light, say that you're attacking Bitcoin or you're being hostile. Right. And no right. one wants to ever be accused of attacking the one thing that you love and the one thing that you're born and raised, you know, feel like you're almost like, see, like, like, like almost like your, your birthright, but that term is kind of outdated, but almost like you were born to, to do this. Um, yeah. and then the, the crypto industry is the least introspective and the least self-critical <laughs> industry in the world, man. It's true. <laughs> like, it's, it's true, like, you I, know how the, the cops have the, the blue wall of silence, you know what I mean? Yes. Where they, they don't rat on each other. Totally the same in crypto. Like if you say anything critical about the industry, it's like, Hey bro, what are you doing, man? Like we're all in this together. Remember, you know? <laughs> So you get demonized, which is like, it's it's hard because like you're constantly straddling this tension. Like you think Bitcoin and public blockchains are like incredibly positive for the world. At the same yes. time, there's like a bunch of nonsense going on. And like you can see that certain projects are liable to lose people a lot of money. But it's hard to straddle that line and like feel morally okay about like being a Bitcoiner and being in the crypto space. Uh, and always wonder, like, am I doing enough to, like, you know, warn people about the, like, darker corners of the industry? Straddling that line. That's the topic that I, that I think about and I wanted to talk to you because I know you have to think about it. You thought about it then. You think about it every day. It's in your investment thesis. I mean, I look at your investment thesis. I'm just going to read it for a second. You say, we believe that permissionless blockchains represent a new form of political economic institution that will fundamentally alter market structures and spawn entirely new industries. And I agree with that, but you say, you know, you say like permissionless blockchains. And then I want to read another quote very quickly when you had closed your $50 million fund. You said my first, and I, and I love this, you said my first love is Bitcoin and we're not abandoning Bitcoin. I think that abandoning is like a strong word, but you yeah. said your focus has always been crypto financial market infrastructure. And Bitcoin is is not only part of that. And I think, what were you trying to say there? And who were you talking to when you were making that quote? Uh, it's a great question. You're putting me on the spot here. That's definitely the most like sensitive part of uh, of our investment case. And it's challenging because you're trying to juggle all these different interest groups. Like you, for, on the one hand, you have investors and like potential investors, and what they want is you to be radically open minded, right? venture capital, you're not really meant to be narrow-minded. You're meant to be super open-minded to any kind of, any wacky opportunity that maybe other people haven't cottoned on to yet. So the the model for the, you know, optimal venture capitalist is someone who is completely, totally open to any crazy new idea whatsoever. Um, and then you have I myself am a Bitcoiner. That's how I would describe myself politically, even. That is my political affiliation. Oh, I like that. Is Bitcoin. You know, I don't belong to a political party. 
I don't vote. I'm a Bitcoiner. I'm a Bitcoiner. That's how I express my political views in the world. I think I'm, you know, fomenting positive change. So there's By that. The- and of course, Bitcoiners don't like it when, you know, yeah. you diversify at all. And so there's that interest group to juggle. And then, of course, you've got entrepreneurs. And entrepreneurs will use the right tool for the task. So sometimes they'll use Bitcoin. And of course, we invest in Bitcoin-owned companies. And then sometimes they will use other blockchains. And, you know, honestly, as long as those blockchains work uh, at the way that, you know, they're meant to, and like, that's an open question. But as long as they do that, I'm not going to begrudge a founder for building on Ethereum, for instance. I th- and and that's been like a challenge and a journey that I've had to like undertake here. But you will begrudge them for choosing Ethereum over another blockchain. So you'll say, why Ethereum and why not Cosmos, right? Like they can't just say I'm choosing Ethereum for the sake of Ethereum. There has to be reasons now, at least in the founders of today, like today, right now, if someone said to me, came to my family office, said, Charlie, can you help, you know, raise this money? And we're, we're launching on, I don't know, like we're launching on Ethereum. I'm going to say like, you, you have an uphill battle proving to me why when all some of the smart money is now moving over to these uh, layer twos or these federated blockchain type of systems where you can run your own blockchain within a, a federation of other, it's just all these different things because of basically, I guess my point is that everyone has to get a lot smarter, a lot quicker. Yeah, the way I see startups is that they're all about timing. Like, in a long enough timeline, every good idea basically happens, and every good idea gets built That's a good point. And, and makes money. But it is about what the right and optimal time for that good idea to emerge is. So, like, if you wanted to create a Bitcoin payments business in 2014, that was, the, this was just timing was wrong. You know, it was, was going to be a challenging time to yeah. do that. So if you wanted to create, you know, a Lightning-based DeFi protocol 2018 when Lightning was in its total infancy, that was also the wrong time. And if you wanted to create, you know, I, I'm trying to think of another example, but like if you wanted to create Netflix in 1995, it wouldn't have worked either. Like yeah. Netflix's first business was mailing people DVDs. In fact, they did, still did that for a long time, actually, believe it or not. That, so that was our first business, and only later, when like the internet infrastructure, you know, we moved to a different, a new model, broadband, yeah. could we have streaming? So you got to think about that. And today, founders that are building business on blockchains, they've got this enormous array of opportunities. Like they could try and go for an L two on ETH. They could build on Lightning. They can build on a bunch of new, apparently high throughput blockchains uh so all i would ask is there's a lot of them so many yeah so it doesn't necessarily have to be bitcoin like bitcoin's not going to be suitable for everything in fact there's a lot of things i would say bitcoin is not suitable for like the insertion and storage of arbitrary data um or adding tokens on top of bitcoin base layer for instance like we used to do in the past yeah so yeah there's like other places that you can go to do that if you really want to so to reconcile kind of like what you're saying and how I think about it, if you take that political class that we're a Bitcoiner, and I love that because I just talked to Dovi Wan. 
I had her on the show, mm-hmm. and she wrote a whole. She it's like her thing about this Bitcoin or new asset class and network, like a shadow organization that's eventually gonna gonna rise and and things like that. But I do agree Love that it. we do transcend modern day politics and bipartisanship and all that other everything. Like we, our class, it doesn't matter. Like uh, uh, color of your skin, where you're from, anything. Like 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 male, female. All these different other like attributes that we fought over for thousands of years, it, it all just doesn't matter anymore uh, because of of what blockchain is and 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 how it all works. But I wanted to to ask if you thought instead of looking at it as a line, can we look at it more of like a spectrum, right? And Bitcoin is on the far is the leader. It is the 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 defining number. Bitcoin is a moving scale, is a moving target of the path to decent. I remember there's a book growing up. He's read The Path of the Just. So he called The Path to mm. Decentralization, like the path of the Buddha. So you're, you're, con- you're never actually reach full decentralization or whatever that term is, but it's like a path to. And Bitcoin and other blockchains are on that path. And those are the ones that we could include in our Bitcoin or asset class. And we can say that are part of our investment thesis. And these are the ones that are trying to do decentralized permissionless blockchains but maybe not as decentralized or not as permissionless as bitcoin but they're still on that path or that scale but then you have other ones like maybe the xrps and the ripples that are never want to be that that or right. cl- fully decentralized and there are so many of them now like 80% of them at launch are fully centralized and can be taken down by one developer right now is that yeah. a better way to look at things? A spectrum. I know it blurs that line and we can all come up with our own. This is how I rec- This is how I sleep at night. Tell yeah, me I if I'm it's, okay. <laughs> it's about intent. It's about yeah. intent. You know, is the team making a credible commitment to actually surrender power? Because that's what it's about, right? It's about power. Do they want to wield centralized control over the protocol in perpetuity? Or do they want to actually build something that will be decentralized and give you all those nice attributes of decentralization, censorship resistance, you know, seizure resistance, strong property rights, things like that that Bitcoin gives us. I'm totally prepared to entertain a project that is willing to credibly commit to that. As you say, a lot of projects are not even willing to attempt to become truly decentralized. How do like my listeners know? Ripple. How can they find out that information? How can they do their own research to find, to weed through the the shitty ones and then the good ones that are at least on that path or trying or claiming to be? What are some things that we can look at? I mean, if there's a controlling organization, if there's a CEO, you know, if there's a corporation or a foundation that seems to be wielding a lot of control, if there's a lot of frequent hard forks, Mm. you know, where clearly there's developers that are imposing top-down development schedules on the protocol, which is always should be a red flag because that's a way to potentially change the nature of the system. And we're talking about money here, so rapid changes are dangerous and potentially extractive. So if you notice you know, highly iterative, rapid software development cycles, that's, that's something to be wary of, frankly. Uh, if you notice a small entity or you know a small group of individuals that effectively exert control, the, my question to them would be like, well, clearly they're gaining from their proximity to 
this network. Like they can redirect protocol rewards to themselves if they want. Probably we see it happen all the time. I mean, what's the point of even doing this if that's the case? And given that they have close access to this pot of money, why would they surrender that? So it's hard to envision a world where you have you know a blockchain and a corporate entity that's very that basically controls it, and they willingly give up that power over time. Like the way Satoshi did it with no corporate entity, no intellectual property, he didn't take any credit for it, uh, didn't really uh, recognize any of the coins that he mined, never really sold them as far as we can tell. Isn't that so crazy? from the start, from the start, uh, cho- chose to you know, not claim any of the rewards of creating that thing, whether they're reputational rewards or material rewards. That is the best way. <laughs> Whether a corporate that controls a blockchain can do that is an open question. Satoshi was very brilliant in that he figured out a way to not only transfer, like, without almost any latency, direct energy into like a, like, like almost like taking an energy and putting it into a battery. Bitcoin is taking energy and, and I don't know, tokenizing it or putting a, like a value to it, like perfect balance of supply and demand of the world. And in a, perfect efficient market of like what the value of one unit of energy is or whatever you know so now we look at that satoshi and or the satoshi group basically incentivized greed where they said like bitcoin mining and keeping the the system together integrity and it all comes down for at the end of the day we don't want to lose money we don't want to lose this value i don't know if greed's the right word mm-hmm. so in that respect what do you think motivated satoshi to do this or the Satoshi group. Like, I, I struggle with that because I try to understand, like, what motivates human beings? Yeah. What motivates human beings? You know, we look at, some people will say it's, a, it's, a, a, it's money. I think it's no one wants to be buried in a grave alone. No one wants to be forgotten. You know, we want to have mm. a family. We want to have a wife or a partner or a husband, whatever. To, but Satoshi gave up both. He gave up the legacy and the greed. Well, Satoshi's legacy is going to endure over the centuries. And I think choosing to release Bitcoin as a pseudonymous individual or group was the best way to ensure that because now we have the legend of Satoshi, right? Satoshi is a mythological figure because I I can't think of another example where you had someone that gave up and sacrificed so much to bring something so pure and good to the world and collected no apparent gain from having done that. I mean, if Bitcoin goes to $190,000, which is not implausible, Satoshi will be the richest entity man on earth, right? That's unbelievable, according to the coins that you know we, we yeah. suspect they have. So not only did Satoshi not recognize that wealth, but they also... Uh, chose to, you know, none of their presumably neighbors, friends, family know that it was them because Satoshi knew that it was a very dangerous thing to do. Satoshi had seen what happened to Eagle, saw what happened to the Liberty Reserve, saw the failure of DigiCash, centralized corporate model, David Chom, the CEO. You know, so all those models failed. So the only way for this thing to succeed was to liberate it and to free it from Satoshi's desire for recognition. To me, that's mythological. I mean, what human has that amount of like restraint, basically? That's what I'm asking you. 
Yeah, I, I don't know. It's 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 unbelievable almost. Um, so I think that's Satoshi's legacy, and I think it's incredibly pure, and that is part of what give, gives Bitcoin so much strength, that the origins of Bitcoin are so pristine. I mean, really, like a new monetary network with an origin story this good? It's like, how freaking lucky are we <laughs> that Satoshi was this unbelievably yeah. sort of generous and self-sacrificial person? It's a very, it's, it's, this, it's the best thing about Bitcoin, but it's also the scariest part about this whole thing. It's industry. humbling. It's humbling that, uh, that this network was initiated by someone so apparently un, unwilling to actually collect monetary gains from do the you network. Think, do you think that's why institutions uh, or these acceptance of it now, do you think? the satoshi like mythology has helped it or hurt it helped 100 percent. i know you see it as risk factors in like the coinbase s1 like you see oh could satoshi return that's a risk but generally oh i didn't even read that yeah that's in there that's in there oh that sounds um, like good reading yeah it is it's, <laughs> it is really interesting yeah i mean with the risk factors in, in ipos people don't realize sometimes the lawyers will just do a total brain dump and think of everything conceivably bad that could happen, put it on the page. So when a firm has those risk factors, it doesn't necessarily mean that sure. they actually expect that thing to happen. But, you know, just caveat that. Um, yeah, I mean, from my experience talking with institutions, which is part of my job, uh, and, you know, one of the things I, I try to do, quote unquote, for Bitcoin is, you know, help them along that journey of understanding it, um, is you know, emphasize that this thing is leaderless and that the originator is long gone and that there was no fee, there's no extraction. You know, Satoshi didn't, uh, you know, allocate themselves 20% of the coins or whatever. Uh, and I think that fact that is this organic bottom-up movement, you know, truly grassroots movement, totally appeals to them. And it, it gives Bitcoin a lot more legitimacy, frankly. My second biggest fear is the coming uh, attack that I see coming on, on, on not the industry, but Bitcoin specifically, and it's the energy attack. Um, yeah. We see rumblings of it now, but this is going to be a coordinated effort between all enemies of Bitcoin, between the people that don't like cryptocurrency, and then those blockchains that align themselves with those who never liked cryptocurrency as a whole. And that's going to be very dangerous, obviously, mm -hmm. for those it's like when the when the Saxons would uh, align with the Danes, and it never ended up being a good idea. Um, for those who read you know, the the Last Kingdom or whatever, Saxon Tales, great great life history books right there. By the way, I love your mug. For those who are not watching, you should be. He has an. I'm not going to describe the mug to you because you're going to want it. So now I hope you go on YouTube and watch the show instead. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's the magic internet money. Our Bitcoin, yeah. uh, famous logo. Um, that someone... that 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 ugly MS Paint drawing of a wizard was yeah. what really helped get me into Bitcoin in 2013 because it was the ad on Reddit, and I thought it was so stupid, and yeah. I was like, okay, like I'll go see what this Bitcoin subreddit's all about. We don't and take ourselves like, too seriously, right? That's what I love about it. That's the best part. I mean, it's this is very serious in one way. Like yeah. you're just describing a coming attack on the network is going to be really genuine and difficult to deal with but also like it's magic internet money you yeah. have to be lighthearted about it the this this attack 
is going to say, you know, so the only physical manifestation of of Bitcoin are and the coincidentally the most important aspect of our one of the most important aspects of our industry uh, are these are Bitcoin mining are Bitcoin miners. You know, uh, uh, it creates a beautiful checks and balances system in 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 Bitcoin. But at the same time, it's the first like physical manifestation. Knowing that, knowing that there has always been so much fear, uncertainty, and doubt of of that Bitcoin hogging up all of the world's energy. My fear is that 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 miners around the world will further be attacked, and then that the fear, uncertainty, and doubt coupled with like loss of hash power because some miners are moving or turning off, or there's just coordinated FUD. That is one of my biggest fears going into the next three years. Yeah, I mean, and uh, we saw what just happened in Inner Mongolia, which is not Mongolia, the country, but that's a province in China, where Inner Mongolia's grid is about 70% uh, coal and non-renewable and about 30% uh, wind and solar. This is something people don't know. They actually have abundant wind and solar. But the Chinese government basically banned mining in that province because they felt that it was sort of hogging grid resources. Um, so I expect that that will happen in other places where miners are mining on grid, mm. right? But the good news is that there's so many other places where Bitcoin can exploit these little pockets of stranded energy that Bitcoin has a good future sort of off-grid or in countries that have too much energy, overabundant energy, which is actually a bunch of different places. Um, and with hydro in particular is a common form of overabundant energy. So while I do expect Bitcoin mining installations to be chased out of certain jurisdictions, it's just going to equilibrate. Um, it'll reconstitute where big and Bitcoin doesn't care where it's mined. Mm. And it doesn't it really doesn't, care doesn't about matter. the absolute level of hash power either. Like it could go down 30% wouldn't make a difference, could go up, wouldn't make a difference. Um, so it's just this really malleable thing that is able to resist all these shocks. And frankly, if if grid authorities mine or ban Bitcoin mining on grid, that's a good thing as far as I'm concerned. Yes, that would be uh, an amazing thing uh, if we had the infrastructure already built to support it, which, which is happening now. You're seeing uh, huge amounts of better energy creation that's better for the environment that's cheaper and more efficient, better for the earth. Well, I already said that, but I want to say it again. Why? Because Bitcoin miners need all of that and want all of that. There's now an economic drive for all of those things that I just described. So these environmental groups should be thanking us. And you wrote an article that was so good, objectivity, no objectivity on Bitcoin mining. And I'm not sure, I can read the numbers here, but uh, like we were talking about in those movies about the old Iraq war when you'd see them driving and there were these big, and, and for, you know, you guys know what I'm talking about, those big, uh, they have them in Texas, those big um, metal, like, like uh, electricity poles, that, that burning gas, yeah. like gas is burning yeah. or fire. And you're like, you think that's normal. That's not normal. That's because there's not a, there's the, the cost of taking that energy and bringing it to a place where that energy is demanded is too high. So they just burn off the gas. It's wasted energy. Yeah. Do you think all of that wasted energy, if it was able to be harnessed, could actually support the current Bitcoin network, Nick? Yes, it absolutely could. It could support it five to ten times over just in the U.S. alone. I ran the numbers 
you can do it yourself too. You can go to the um, the Energy Administration. You can get they have numbers on vented or flared gas in the U.S. And as you say, that's a waste byproduct of oil extraction because they don't want the natural gas. They're off grid. There's no pipeline infrastructure at most of these wells. Natural gas isn't worth very much right now, so it's not worth it to capture it. And so what all these guys do is they flare it off. That was one percent of the natural gas uh, extraction last year was this waste byproduct at oil wells, which couldn't be put to use. So because Bitcoin is a buyer of energy anywhere, twenty four seven, you can set an installation down, and this is what a lot of startups and firms I'm aware of are doing. Put that to to work, combust it in a cleaner way because it's in a controlled way now in a generator. And that could support the Bitcoin network. Um, the official estimates you'll get about venting and flaring are way conservative estimates. The analysts I've talked to in the energy industry tell me that the unofficial estimates are likely five to 10 times higher. And if you convert that into terawatt hours, you get a figure, even with the conservative official estimates, um, that basically the Bitcoin network in its current form could be supported just by venting and flaring just in the US alone. So and and that's sort of carbon neutral because that venting and flaring is going to happen anyway because it's a byproduct of oil mining. That's insane. Um it's insane that information like this uh won't come out. Um you talk about fear, uncertainty and doubt being written in, in some of these articles and in, in news in, in like like in Bloomberg and then you come out and simply post the numbers and we've talked about it and I feel like we've rang this bell so many times over, uh, but they won't listen. And then unfortunately, the the proof of stake crowd is really warming to this anti-environmental idea. I see it. If I see a, a, a white paper or a freaking business deck that attacks the energy aspect of Bitcoin, I'm going to burn it because it's the it just shows that you don't know how to do your own research. So for all the founders yeah. that are attacking Bitcoin for all these environmental reasons and, pro- and you're looking at proof of stake defies the uh, proof of stake in, a, in its current form defies all laws of physics. It, it won't work in the long term because it just amasses power in the control of a few people who would never want change because there would be no benefit to them in the long term. Yeah, I mean, proof of stake, people think it's a new concept. It's not. Proof of stake is the old model, right? Where the more coins or wealth you have, the more political power you have. That's what proof of stake means. That's the old model the Bitcoin proposes an alternative to. The more Bitcoins you have, that doesn't give you any control over consensus. And we learned this empirically yeah. in 2017. We had the user-activated soft fork. We had the 2x uh, movement was defeated. So like various entities that are wealthy in Bitcoin terms tried to commandeer Bitcoin and change it. And the Bitcoin community rejected that. Proof of stake just restores the old model where if you're a big institution or firm, you have political power. And what's going to happen if these coins go mainstream? All of the coins are going to settle on exchanges, banks, financial institutions, and then they will have control over the network under a proof-of-stake system. So yes, you avoid some of the energy externalities, but you're also not doing anything new. So I don't see the merit. I love it. I love it. Nick, um, how can my listeners follow you, uh, your blog and your Twitter and your podcast? Well, everything is aggregated at my personal website, nickcarter.info. 
that also runs on Handshake, uh, which is a decentralized domain system. So uh, I own the Nick Carter Handshake domain. That's right. So if you can resolve, how do those I build domains, this? I just want to copy. Even your your site is beautiful. I just want to copy the layout and everything. Is it hard to build? <laughs> oh no, it's easy. It's I did it in an hour on WordPress and, and Handshake. Yeah, Okay, cool. Well, it's it's meant to be very simple and easy to navigate. But yeah, that's that's my website. And then I'm on Twitter, Nick underscore underscore Carter. That's two underscores. Nick underscore underscore Carter. You can follow me. I need to create a list of all the podcast guests' Twitter accounts because um, that list would be like that 170 list would be the perfect like because I'd have I have guests who would fully disagree with everything that you just said. And yeah. I guess I disagree with everything I just said, but it's that's it's my show, so I can do whatever I want. Thanks everyone for listening. I appreciate it. And don't forget to to help out all the sponsors. Thanks, Charlie. This <laughs> Thank was you, good, Nick. man. I'll talk to you later. <laughs>